there is a war between the rich and poor, a war between the man and the woman. There is a war between the ones who say there is a war and the ones who say that there isn't. Why don't you come on back to the war that's right, get in it. Why don't you come on back to the war, it's just beginning. Welcome everybody, this is Michael Pelias for another episode, our eighth episode of Prosperity Marxism. I'm joined by my co-host, uh, Peter Bratzis, and today we have the special honor of a guest from Paris, an old comrade uh, and friend from New York who's been residing in Paris, I think, for four years now, or maybe longer, five, five years, the, the big good five, okay. And uh, we're going to be uh, talking about uh, his, um, his book that is uh, now beginning to create some stir called The Birth of the Binge. Serial TV and the End of Leisure by Dennis Bro that came out in 2019, published by Wayne State Press. Um, and uh, one uh, essential feature of this book for people that are bingers is he catalogs the 100 seminal series from <laughs> up through, I think, 2018, up until 2018 at the back of the book. So it, it can also serve as a guide, a desktop guide, for your favorite serials or when we go into post-pandemic uh, uh, moment of uh, more and more binging, you have at least a guidebook to take you through. So anyway, um, I'm, I welcome Dennis from Paris uh, and uh, uh, I hope everything's safe and secure with you there and it's great to see you. And uh, we're, we're gonna talk about your book today. We're gonna have a nice, uh, long dialogue between uh, you mostly, we'll do most of the talking about your book, but we have some leading questions about this and, and Peter certainly has some interventions too. I think uh, the, the first uh, uh, thing we can look at, and I, I wanna mention, the book has already been reviewed in Sight and Sound um, and uh, Situations, a project for the radical imagination, will have a review of it in its fall issue uh, by Will Straw, um, you know, who was a, a cultural studies person at McGill University, who's generously offered to review it. And Dennis, you want to add a couple of other places where it may have been reviewed? For uh, yeah, well, Frederick Jameson gave a talk about it at Duke, uh, right. and uh, then there was another professor at Duke who also spoke about it. Um, it's reviewed in Journal of International Communication. And it's on the, uh, it made the list of a course on seriality and futurity at Berkeley. Right, right. Okay, so it's getting a lot of, uh, lot of play. That's great. So I, I'd like to begin, uh, first of all, the, uh, the, uh, with the intention for writing the book, the uh, sort of, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, the authorial intention here. It seems to me that one of the reasons you wrote this book was to make a crucial intervention in terms of the expansion of TV studies. And one thing that you know is very close to me in terms of its approach is the multi-dimensional uh, and uh, multidisciplinary integrated approach that you take. You draw from psychoanalysis, philosophy, film theory, you know, uh, cultural anthropology, many, many disciplines are integrated very well here. But maybe you can speak to that first, what, what the level of the intervention is 
and also uh, somewhat to the orientation uh, through the work of Bernard Stiegler, the French philosopher, and his notion of hyper-industrialism and tertiary memory, you know, um, and tertiary retention, as well as uh, Raymond Williams's classic Marxist study of television. So maybe we can begin there as a kind of backgrounding for the book. Okay, thank you, Michael, for your introduction um, and for showing the book. Um, so, you know, about this, I thought, you know, we're going to take a deep dive into television today. And then I sort of started thinking about that phrase, you know, um, what's a deep dive? It means we're actually going to think about something seriously, you know, but the, the obverse of that phrase, it's truth, is that most of the time in this society, we're just swimming on the surface. So we have to have a phrase which connotes actually thinking about something. Okay. So, so today's a deep dive, I guess. All right. Great. Okay. Uh, and, and it's strange that it's strange that uh, we have to have that phrase. But uh, it, it, I think the phrase itself uh, connotes, you know, something of where uh, where this is where this society is. Anyway, so my idea. Uh, was I was trying to make an intervention in the field of television studies. I feel that, uh, well, most television studies books begin with the television series, and that's what, and then also end there. So that's what they talk about. And also, the I hate to say this, but the discipline in the U.S. is is um, sometimes somewhat limited. First of all, it's kind of limited in that it mostly really concentrates on the U.S. And it's also kind of, it seems to me, seemed to me always sort of heavily bound up with the industry. You know, there's a, a Carsey Warner Foundation, which is, you know, Carsey Warner are the people behind Friends. Uh, and lots of people are getting lots of money to do quote, research on television, but really they're just sort of researching for the networks. And I also felt that I, I, I wanted to go, I wanted to do the opposite. There's eight chapters in my book, and uh, chapters seven and eight finally get around to where the usual television studies book would begin. So as you said, I wanted to, to run the discipline through the fields of, you know, philosophy, and particularly Stiegler through sociology, and talk about television and its audience, particularly the streaming audience and what hap what's, why audiences, uh, who are the audiences now and how did streaming develop to accommodate or to pursue them, actually is another way of saying it. I wanted to talk about autism, social autism and uh, addiction in terms of, of psycho psychoanalysis. And I wanted to talk about the political economy, what is the structure of the industry, because one of the arguments is that the industry is entirely different now, and finally we're free. Finally, we can create, and we can watch, we can create our own network, and we can watch, we can create the network of shows that we finally want to, because we never had that freedom under the networks. And so my book, sort of that chapter, is about how uh, the more things change, the more they actually don't. Um, and then I talked about seriality and the history of seriality and, uh, and where, tele where television seriality fits in that. Um, and then finally about narratology itself, what are the characteristics that seemed, what are the things that seem to characterize uh, serial television? And I uh, looked at, I'm gonna show a little clip from uh, Justify, 
to talk about how these characteristics are put into play and how with all the characteristics, they can either go toward the addictive or they can go toward this sort of totality. And the, the second season of Justify is perhaps the high point uh, of serial television. By the way, there's also a possibility that we've, we've already passed through the golden age. People are always talking about the second golden age. Well, it was a second golden age. It might have been something like 1992 to about 2004, and we may be beyond it. We may, I mean, the, the, the phrase that's used right now in terms of talking about TV is peak TV. That is like peak oil that we've, we, there's too much and it's flooding and glutting the market. So uh, there is a possibility that, uh, that the, the sort of golden age is done. And if you look at my hundred serial series, the, the really great series were mostly from 1992 to about 2004. Uh, almost all of those are sort of worth watching, uh, not, not totally so much afterwards when, you know, the profit motive and competition starts to come in. Anyway, uh, so that's that's sort of introduction. Um, right. I will say, just to say, before I start talking about Stiegler, just to say at the moment, just to give an idea of what's going on now, um, you know, at the tail end of when I was writing the book in 2018, and now uh, we've seen this massive uh, era of sort of uh, monopolization and conglomeration. It's really increased. So that we have we have these massive, uh, you know, and everyone's trying to get into streaming. Uh, everyone feels this is the future, and of course, the coronavirus thing has greatly hastened that. I mean, sure. right now, there's no. Well, I guess Disney. I guess the uh, the Shanghai Disney Shanghai just reopened, but sure. Sure. The, the four cruise ships are sitting in the dock, and the uh, and. Uh, you know, the, the, um, uh, the amusement parks are closed. Disney's really taking it on a chin, and there's no filming going on. All they've got is Disney Plus. That's all they've got to sell at the moment is, there, is this sort of catalog. So, and we've seen this whole conglomeration. Disney, Disney merges with Fox, AT&T with Time Warner, uh, Comcast with Universal, and then Comcast by Sky. So, right. so right. an incredible... What we've seen is an incredible trying to corner the market now. And yep. let me just say also that these uh, mergers are attacks on the, you know, uh, on the, the global system of television, which is everywhere outside the United States, mostly public and mostly funded by, by, public, uh, by public funds. So these services coming in under you know, uh, I mean, uh, Netflix and all these things, you know, coming in under regulations are often attempts to sort of subvert what are the, what are publicly funded television, you know? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, so I did talk about Stiegler a lot. Um, you know, Stiegler's characteristic of post-industrialism as the economy becomes more digitalized. Symbolic. Hyper, hyper, hyper industrialism. I'm sorry, yes. That's that, okay. that's, Yes, Stiegler's arguing, yeah. right. arguing with the term post-industrialism and instead yes. uh, hyper-industrialism. Right. Now, important distinction yeah. is that the old ruthlessness process of accumulation continue in the digital age. 
So we're not, we haven't, uh, you know, we're hyper-industrialized, not, uh, not post. Um, uh, you know, as sort of, we have these, what Stigler calls, frenzied new processes of accumulation. Um, and he characterizes the processes as reducing the object of desire to a calculability. Uh, but it nevertheless promises infinite pleasure at an affordable price. And that is something that the streaming services seem to seem to promise. And you know, I talked about, in some sense, they are sort of the last bastion of where capital can still promise abundance. Uh, because the material world is, they're not delivering much abundance in the material world. But perhaps they can, perhaps the illusion, they can still maintain the illusion of delivering it uh, online. Um, uh, let's see. And, um, you know, there's a refuge, a place of plenty where the capitalist promise of abundance is still fulfilled, as I said. Uh, and it's also interesting that while the price of education, healthcare, and food from 2005 to 2014 increased in the US from anywhere to 20 to 40%, the price of cell phones, toys, mobile accessories, computers, and televisions fall, fell from 40 to 100%. That is, in some cases, you don't even pay anything, suggesting the poor and increasingly the elements of the middle class while being denied basic needs and ways of advances are being offered the virtual world as compensation. And, uh, uh, you know, so the drive is more centralized. Uh, it's satisfied by catering to highly specialized demographics. Uh, it's called more democratic, but in no sense is that actually true. Um, so, you know, we have this sort of hyper narrativity to go along with hyper industrialism. And that's what. Uh, what's been called complex TV, what I call serial TV, um, but a sort of great increase in the uh, drive of the narrative devices. And elsewhere in the book, I take this, uh, you know, sort of reading uh, in which he uh, develops the sort of five, uh, five uh, ideas of how narrative works. And I show how a show like 24, now has these, throws all of these into a kind of hyper mode, you know. Right. Right. Used to have a conclusion, now you have five conclusions. Right. Uh, sort, of, sort of amplifying everything at the end of the season, for example, you know. Um, as Stiegler says, technologies of memory have gone from being techniques of transmitting knowledge to being an increasingly important part of the industrial economy. Uh, integrally submitted to the imperatives of globalization and the mechanics of work. Uh, a major victory for capital um, and, you know, an encroachment on everyone's life. Um, the process he talks about reaches another level of intensity in the moment of the 80s, the change from analogic to digital. And I would only add that, or I would add in sort of my field, that 1982, when that, when that mode is coming in, when uh, neoliberalism is really beginning to emerge as a sort of dominant, that's the first, those are the first moments of serial TV. Uh, 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 oh gosh, <laughs> oh geez, I just- Well, I think you, I think in an interesting Hill Street Blues, which was yes. a police procedural in a certain yes. way, a different kind yes. of police procedural that you mentioned in your book as well. That, that yes, a different kind of 
It started wow. out as a sensitivity, a sensitive group of police officers in Chicago, the Hill Street Blues. Yeah. Yes, and, and but, but also, but also, it was a, it was also a serial series for the first time. That is, there was, uh, you see, uh, one of the things is that serial serial TV overthrows the network version of TV, which is episodic. In right. other words, that television is confined is is only one episode at a time with very little continuity. The um, the epitome of that is the joke every week on The Simpsons where uh, Mr. Burns can't remember who Homer is. Who is this guy anyway? Oh, that's Homer Simpson. Oh, well, really, you know? So it's a joke, that's their joke on episodic TV where your memory is erased every week. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it just starts, starts from scratch. Yeah. soap operas were already uh, 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 serialized television? Yes, they were, and, and yes, yeah, serialized, but sort of devaluated, or devalued, you know, because because uh, they don't quite fit, they didn't quite fit the network economic model. The economic model was that you wanted to have five seasons, a hundred shows, and then you wanted to go into syndication. Right. Serial TV is anathema to syndication because when you're watching, you want to watch your episode of Law and Order, and at the end of it, you want to know Law and Order is over. You don't want to have to, you don't, you, you don't want to feel like you need to go back four or five episodes in order to understand what any of the characters are saying. So, so yes, that's where serial TV really begins with daytime TV and soaps. And what happens around 92, uh, where this makes a whole leap, a leap forward. Well, first the soaps come to network television. You have Dynasty and that, those kinds of things, but they're mostly, they sort of just kind of tr do the trap, do it in a very trashy way. Then David Lynch does something that really, that's sort of the ur text for serial TV, and that's Twin Peaks. And he, and he connects to uh, soap operas because Twin Peaks is Peyton Place. Yes. But he shows that the form can convey a lot more than what, you know, the, if, you, if you talk about the underside of the form, it can certainly convey a lot more than it, than it ever has, you know? And so that's really, if you, if you talk to people in television, it's amazing. I go to these conferences here sometimes and they will always talk about Twin Peaks. They will always refer back to that to that show. It, it is, I think, the urtext of serial TV. You know, but yes, you're right. But 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 that that was serial TV. That was that was serial TV. That was kind of ignored, and then that that, that sort of carried the sort of minor trend that then started to become a major one. Right. Just to say, the networks hate serial TV. They despise it because it goes against the syndicate model because it also does require a bit more from the audience. You have to become a bit invested in the characters and you have to be able to have a memory. You can't be like Mr. Burns. You can't forget Homer, you can't forget who Homer is every week. It just doesn't work that and you're not going to enjoy the show. Anyway. Uh, Obviously, a, 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 you know, a big uh, um, theme and concept in your book is this uh, sh shift to serial television and seriality. Can you maybe uh, 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 explain how it's linked to Sartre's idea of, ser of serialization 
of the linkage between this serialization of television and the political consequences of uh, that form that you emphasize in the book? Uh, yeah, I try to talk about, I try to develop sort of two themes in terms of seriality that I think, um, you know, philosophically, I, I don't, I don't know if it totally works, but I think in terms of television producers that they do, they do perhaps look at these two things. The one being more like a Nietzschean sort of eternal return where, uh, you know, and that's the more sort of disjointed seriality of effects. I'm not saying that that's what Nietzsche said. I'm saying that that's what's sort of taken from, it, you know, so that you keep sort of going back on yourself, you know, kind of, uh, and nothing really sort of moves forward. Things really just sort of continue in a, in a pattern. My wife has a great line, actually. We watch sometimes these shows. There was a Spanish show that we were watching. There was like uh, 14... 13 episodes, and sometimes this is a, this is a common thing uh, for a mystery. What they will do is they create a lot of characters at the beginning, and then, uh, and then they will throw a spotlight on a different character every week, right? So my wife is Indonesian, who said, this is Snake, and I don't like Snake. You know, and when you, that is sort of the thing sometimes that you, uh, that you see going on. Uh, and, and that's what sort of, that's when it's not, uniform is not working that well. And sometimes, as, as I said, you know, there's a, there's a certain form of seriality, I think it comes from more sort of seriality in, um, in minimalism, in art, and also in uh, music, in the sort of uh, Reich and, uh, you know, um, I mean, Reich and, and Cage, that kind of stuff. But then I think there's a different form of seriality, and, and that's, that's a possibility. Um, then I think there's a different form, which is, grows more sort of out of a totality. It sort of comes out of Sartre, Sartre talks about it. Sartre talks about the way groups are, are, uh, can be formed and can move from one, from, from a sort of, can move from a sort of, um, I don't know, you know, in these terms, addictive, addictive, you know, sort of broken down thing to more of a totality, can become, can form themselves into a group, but then often disperse. Whereas, um, whereas if you think of the totality of Marx and Hegel, it does sort of, at least in some sense, move toward uh, a social definition, a social definition and a kind of orienting of people, well, what Jameson called um, uh, cognitive mapping, you know, uh, moves toward it moves towards an orientation an orienting of people and for me that that line comes from uh, in literature from Zola from from Balzac but even actually more importantly from Zola I mean I know that Marx liked Balzac but actually I think Zola is more interesting and Marx never read Zola and I think he would agree with me because with Balzac, you get you get all of the uh, you get all of the you get the totality, but you also get Balzac's kind of skewed uh, sort of view of it. But at any rate, Balzac did not know he was writing uh, a serial series until he was halfway into it. Whereas Zola started and very much conceived of the twenty-two books of the Rogan Marcat series as a serial and you know and there are very very interesting links between the characters they come up they fade away you know kind of thing uh, so i think it's more i think uh, i think that the the more positive 
aspects of seriality are in this sort of Zola tradition. And then I also talk about, uh, and also, also I, the other kind of seriality, I think in painting though, that goes against minimalism is Monet. Monet seriality, where he sort of started. And Monet tries, if you look at uh, the Rouen Cathedral series, and uh, I, had the, I had the privilege uh, I guess maybe about seven or eight years ago in Rouen, they brought all of the cathedral paintings together and they put them all in the same room. And what you see is not a series of disjointed effects, but you see Monet trying to capture the totality of light in a certain day. And, and, and the project has uh, an element of totality to it. You know? So I think there's a, that's a sort of counter definition to, um, to this sort of dispersed seriality, which also I think leads to more sort of, sort of sort of pure addiction. And so when I'm watching the shows, I try to look at, you know, what are we watching here? Are we watching a 24? I mean, 24 is in a way absolutely addiction in its purified form. There's nothing going on there in a, in a sense, but how can we hook the audience in what way? In what way are these? What way is this hyper narration going to move forward? And you know, as I talk about in the book, the connotation of twenty four is be afraid, be very afraid. And it it is a show that really does consciously attempt to eliminate any chance of reflection, and it comes right after nine eleven. Uh, so it sort of moves, and it, and it moves right through the period of 9-11. So it kind of moves and, you know, and kind of, it kind of suggests that reflection in, a, in the, quote, war on terror is simply going to slow you down. There's no need to do it. We can't be, we can't be caught up in reflection. But it, that's, that is imprinted on the form of 24. You know, by the way, 24 is also, I mean, it's not ideologically, it is the, uh, was the, um, the boutique show for Murdoch's Fox Network that season. And by the way, also, Murdoch, as he does, micromanaged it in a way. At the end of, I talk, one of the things I talk about is that there's no respite. There's no place to stop in 24. You're just going all the time. And at the end of 24 hours, Jack Bauer, you know, it looks like he's finally destroyed three nests of terrorists. And he goes back to, uh, you know, to the, the counter, to the CTU, the counterterrorism unit. And it looks like, you know, you're finally going to get a chance to relax because the show's over and he finds his wife is dead. So there, there's just no, there's ju there just is no relaxing. The show is just sort of about that continuing to continuing to up the ante. Oh, and I do want to say this about Murdoch. When Twenty Four played that season in Britain, the British writers wrote that most likely the reason his wife was killed at the end was because the actress wanted more money and was critical of Murdoch's politics. So they, a, good way, a good way of assassinating without going to court, huh? Yeah, yeah they wrote her out. Great symbolic yeah. murder there. Yeah. 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 Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a thing about. Uh, here's a, this is a very old story about how Hollywood politics works. Uh, ben Gazzara in this old show only. Well, I don't know if you guys will remember it called Run for Your Life. 
Yeah, I remember it very well. Yeah, he had only uh, uh, two years to live, so he decided right. he's going to really live it out. Yeah, I, he's going to live it out. Okay. Yeah, so at the end, so, so season one was successful. Right. So, uh, so he went to the producers and he said, you know, uh, I really need a lot more money to come back for season two. I mean, Ben Gazzara was a was a real actor. You know, he didn't necessarily want to be messing around with this. And the producer said, Ben, let me tell you a story about how season two can be, could begin. You've just been in a horrible car accident and you've got bandages all over your face. And, you know, we don't know if you're going to recover, but, you know, you're, but you're entirely bandaged. And at the end of the episode, it turns out you do recover and we pull all the bandages off and it's Tony Franciosa. Right. I remember the story. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good story. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so uh, everyone is expendable in the television world, you know, anyway. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, just to go back to a couple of things that you mentioned uh, earlier, uh, it seems to me that the Leonard Cohen uh, phrase, the rich have their, um, their uh, um, channels in the bedrooms of the poor, seems to be part of what's going on here in terms of a new control. I think simultaneously of Godard when he said, the real task of uh, making uh, images is to have the images go faster than the money. It seems like this whole move now is that the money is much faster than the images and kind of controls the images going forward. So, I mean, maybe we could work with those kind of propositions going forward here, you know, in terms of the, the you know, as a transition to quote, political economy and then into addiction too. Yeah. Well, I think that's really apropos of Godard's like about last three or four films because uh, they, they are nothing but images trying to stream, I guess, trying to outrun the money. Outrun the money, right. right. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think good to talk about sort of the class distinction here. Like what gives rise to streaming, you know? So, uh, I use sort of Richard Wolff's book about the economy, uh, especially the economy, well, from after 2000, 2004 to, to 2012 or so, when streaming is on the, on the rise or starting to be on the rise. And, you know, you have this sort of, you know, kind of uh, the, Ameri the, the American worker is really strapped. And uh, first, they're trying to keep up by, by borrowing. Then, they're trying to keep up by putting the whole family to work. And none, nothing is really working. So you have these workers who are, well, oh yes, this is the other thing too, I think a major part of the book is this idea of that you know, neoliberalism, neoliberalism sort of overthrows the Fordist economy. And television is a big part of the Fordist economy because you know, you work nine to five, you come home, you have dinner, and then you're supposed to be in front of the television from eight to 11. Yeah, you can yep. trust in Walter Cronkite in the 60s. Oh, yes, you're supposed to. It's, it's, Howard Gates, yeah. Seven, you should be watching Walter Cronkite. Boy, right. I, think we're, I think we're really dating ourselves. It's 630 or seven, you we should be. We are dating ourselves, yeah. And that, then you get an hour off to do whatever you want, but then eight to 11, you're supposed to be in front of the TV, right? Okay, so, but that's not, that's not the workforce anymore. They're not in front of the TV in A211. They're at their second job, or they're going to school, or they're going to school after their second job. So streaming and streaming on mobiles and tablets 
was a way of television coming out of the home and the hearth. You know, that's really what it was, you know, coming out of the home and the hearth and essentially pursuing its audience, who is now mobile and has to be mobile. Order to Interesting in this context, Farrell since, you know, um, um, three of us here have been, quote, you know, educators, so to speak, right, or in university settings, is you have the asynchronic learning, right, so that the student may be coming home from the job at 12 o'clock, and you can Zoom them in or Skype them in, in terms of their learning, or you set up discussion boards, so there's no longer this need in terms of the traditional classroom and the scheduling of nine o'clock is when the class starts. It's kind of yes. interesting this yes. way. This is where we probably are going somewhat in this uh, post-pandemic, um, you know, uh, ethos. Yeah. So it's yes. interesting and that you bring this up as a shift. In yeah. One, one of the things. One of the things about this is that uh, you know, I mean, the 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 big moment in streaming was when Netflix released all the episodes of uh, House of Cards at the same time, so that you could then start to binge, right? So you could say, in a sense, that now, you, now you're free to watch whenever you want and you're no longer bound to 8 to 11, right? Um, or you could, or you could, you know, but, but actually one of the things that happened, I know this happened with my students, is that, uh, you know, they started boasting about binging. You know, Donald talks about, you know, the difference between use and exchange value. So uh, there, there was no use value to the series. It was all an exchange value, and it all had to do with, the, the boast was, I watched all 18 episodes this weekend, you know, which doesn't say anything about the quality of what happened, you know? Yeah. Also, you know, uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, uh, um, Stiegler talks about is the idea that television matches time, you know? That, is, that more and more television was sort of, television was starting to expand to sort of uh, take, take into account a lot more of our time and to create more tertiary, tertiary retention, you know, and tertiary uh, memories yeah. outside. Yeah. Themselves, yeah. Yeah. that aren't ours, you know, um, and yes, in a sense. But you know, in a way, what we've seen is we haven't seen people being returned to time. We've seen these these uh, devices going after people and attention attempting to capture more and more of their time. Right. You know? Now, right. the latest thing I just want to—I'm not putting it. I don't want to put. I'm writing about this now. Is Quibi, which is really kind of ominous. Uh, Quibi. Are, could be our short shows between seven and ten minutes long that you can watch only watch on your cell phone and they're designed so you watch an episode while you're on your way to work and that's that's how it's that's how it's designed to be consumed right very interesting yeah and also part of the new attention economy where the span is seven to ten minutes for a while that's right yes and people are protentive uh, memory and then yes it, in some sense, you could argue that serial TV was a kind of expansion of attentiveness because you do have to be more attentive in terms of the show, you know, in terms of where it's going. You have to take the whole season in, uh, in mind. Well, this is an attempt to completely devastate that and to turn everything back into seven. Well, I watched uh, the most, the pilot of the most dangerous game of the first episode is seven minutes. 
and it feels like it goes on a little long. You know, I mean, you know, it's very, very, uh, it's very, very condensed. You know, and and everything about it is how quickly can we grab you? You know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. By the way, there's also another thing about Quibi. Uh, which is, has not quite come to light yet, which I'm sort of looking into, and I guess other people are too, which is it may be a way of undercutting the Hollywood unions. Because the unions are, a lot of them are working on contracts where short bits like Quibi uh, don't pay as well, and they pay at a different scale than longer shows. Right. So part of the thing that, you know, Jeffrey Katzenberg is, you know, boasting about, you know, it's a new form, we're going to, we're bringing entertainment to people in a way that this never been done before. But part of the, part of the way that Quibi probably started is by kind of cheating the people who are working on it because the yeah, busting, the, busting the writers' guild and other uh, unions. Yes, and and the others too because the contract hasn't caught up yet to this new form. You know, as Shoshana Zabuf says, that is frequently the way digital media works. It attempts to sort of outwit regulation and unions. Right. And so there's there's something of that in, in Quibi. We're going to see this more and more in academia, too, with the online yes. distance learning. You know, we're really in a reactive position. Yeah. You know, yes, that's right. I will say this, though, that the Teamsters did get a 10-minute, they, they get paid for the whole, the whole price for the 10 minutes because they wrote it into their contract. So well, goes to show you, yeah, sometimes you know, on the road is much smarter than being in the library, right? I guess, you know, uh, so anyway. Uh, and then, All right, so. One phenomena that goes, that's concurrent with this shift to serialization is the proliferation of screens. You know, there are yes. screens cars and taxis and elevators, of course, you know, with the, the smartphones, everyone carries around uh, the screens. So it seems to me there, there's a real connection between seriality as Sartre discusses it in terms of, you know, dividing us, you know, uh, the, the, the divisive quality and the rise of, of serial, uh, serialization and uh, uh, television and so forth, that even in moments when we, people are together, you know, you see this on the subways. Yes, exactly. Right. Yes, it's a, they are. Everyone is focused on screen. So yes, yeah. Yep. I mean, one definition that's very important here, Sarge, that definition of seriality is that it is a plurality of solitudes. That's it's yes. very interesting how he he frames that as a plurality or a multiplicity of solitudes, and of course the example of waiting for a bus, right? In a sense, you know, it's one one moment of that. You know, also a plurality of buildings all looking the same, too. We're beginning to witness this in these new constructions, particularly in New York City or in most of most cities, you know, of um, millions of people. You know, everything all the buildings <laughs> look, look the same. Yeah. No, look, yes, I will say though that, that Sartre does also describe the possibility of evolving from the disparate, nearly fragmented group to the collectivity, uh, to a collectively aware thing that he calls the group infusion, you know? So it's possible. It might be possible to argue that some of the serial series promote a kind of group infusion rather than simply disparate. But the majority of things, I think, is what Peter is saying, the, the, the direction things are going is to break people down. And the, and the example of the 
of the Metro where you just watch, you know, where people at least used to have some interaction with each other and now there's sort of, they, there is no reason for them to have it. Yeah. I mean, Sartre's example, Sartre's example of the group that forms waiting for the bus can't happen. Right. Because, yeah. they're, because they're particularities waiting for the bus now. Right. Exactly. exactly. And the other thing is they're all being spoken to as particularities. Right. So that is one of the things uh, of serial TV has been this idea of, um, of the boutique. You know, that, that, that we have a series designed for you. So mm -hmm. if you're a biker, you know, or, or, or that's your sort of fantasy of, of being, then we've got, uh, oh God, what was the name of that series? Um, what, Sons of Anarchy on the bike? Yeah, yeah, Sons of Anarchy, yes. Yeah, if you're a, a biker wannabe, they've got Sons of Anarchy for you, you know? And I also wanted to point out, too, as Peter was saying, that um, there's a tremendous, you know, while we're seeing, I mean, last year, there were over 500 series produced in the U.S. That's a lot. Uh, however, I mean, you know, my my year-end review said 500 channels, 500 programs, and almost nothing to watch, because you will be hard pressed to find more than 30 series. Which you know, I found 30 last year. I mean, I do watch TV a lot, uh, which I thought which I felt were worth watching, but a lot of it is not. And also, you get a lot of knockoff stuff. You know, just producing for for its sake. Uh, let's see. Um, I had some ideas here on uh, uh, Netflix. What they were doing. Um, uh, oh yeah, here's some. Okay, so that's Netflix has the Expanse, which is warmed over Battlestar Galactica with much less at stake than the fate of the galaxy and shorn of the 9/11 references. The 2016 hit Stranger Things with its children investigation of alien creatures recalls E.T., The Goonies, and more recently, Super 8, with the focus on 80s technology. Sense8, with its multiple characters in a utopian futurist setting, is Cloud Atlas, remade for streaming, and Frontier, with fur traders in a bloody and savage wilderness, is The Raven Aunt, complete with its lead character in series publicity, in Leonardo DiCaprio pose. And finally, there's Girl Boss, She's saucy, sassy, and so is Zoe, Zoe, uh, sorry, so is Zoe Deschanel six years earlier when the Netflix show's prototype New Girl first appeared. So you've got a lot of real duplication, you know? Or well, I'd like, yeah, I'd like to, uh, yeah, make that move. Uh, you know, I mean, it's a, I think it's a, uh, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing is this whole use of seriality from Sartre to also, I think that, uh, you know, just to go back to Nietzsche for a second, since you use the term eternal recurrence of the same, I mean, Nietzsche really wanted that to be mathematized, that things will repeat themselves mathematically almost to the core. So this seems to be also oh. part of the seriality too, you know, and then, of the image of the character, the series, et cetera. Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah. I think he just predicted the Netflix algorithm. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, he did. Yeah. It's very Nietzschean. That's what goes yeah. out. It happened in 1889 uh, before the breakdown. Yes. Yes. Exactly. By the yeah. way, I don't know if you yeah. noticed yeah. or not, the Netflix algorithm sort of presents you with, uh, you know, uh, 
and, and everybody does this now, you know, these are series which are just like the one you watched, except they're nothing like the one you watched. And the one you watched, you watched because it actually offered something. And these are 18 series that offer not, not much, except they sort of look like the one that you watched before. Well, I've, I've watched two, and I've got to say, I mean, I'm guilty of the, the binging. I binged on uh, Babylon Berlin, and well, uh, of course, uh, the Monkey Heist. Those, these are the two that I, uh, you know, and I actually see seriality playing out in, the, in an interesting way. It does become a kind of group infusion on the money house, the characters all coming from disparate moments, et cetera. Yeah. They become a group infusion as a part of this, you know, collectivity and very subversive in a way of what you're, you know, maybe this is a future article for you, the money house, money heist as a uh, subversion of, uh, you know, uh, the notion yeah, I mean, of Syria. Yeah. yeah, I also, I have a, I, I write about money heist. It is, there's an article coming out, uh, in this book called A Darker Greece, Film Noir in Greek Cinema. And uh, my article is called Austerity Noir. And uh, talking about, about uh, Mediterranean Noir, uh, an article I wrote for Situations, but then updating it with Greek Noir. And I, I write about this thing about, like, why was Money Heist so incredibly popular throughout Europe? You know, there's Netflix never had a series like this. It just took off. And right. it sort of seems like the really sort of innovative thing, it, it, and it adds an innovative thing to the heist film, is that they break in not to steal money, but to print it. Right. So it's a kind of, uh, it's a kind of um, you know, poor people's ECB. Yeah, the central bank uh, it becomes the yes. people's bank. Yes, yes. exactly. And, and people are watching this. They're watching the central bank print money and seeing where it's going. None of it's going to them. And this is a series that sort of gives the money back to them. You know, it so. close in the air too. It does rain uh, pennies from heaven. Yes. Yes, it right. does. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah. So let's. Uh, yeah, let's make a move. I, I think those two concepts are great. I mean, the seriality from Sard and from Nietzsche too and they can be worked with you know uh, you know even even further you know that is very very interesting uh, you know uh, uh, but both how you use it in the book and how it could be actually expanded um, you know and uh, you know Sartre speaks of vertical and uh, 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 seriality as hierarchical and then the horizontal as another form so he has many many levels to this uh, this concept that actually could be oriented towards uh, towards looking at, uh, you know, the TV series. But yeah, yeah let's go on to what I find to be one of the more interesting parts of the effects of the, this that also fits into psychic, uh, you know, uh, misery and psychic symbolic misery and Stieglerian terms of what I like to call further psychic impoverishment. You know, when you do this thing on, um, on um, uh, the, the social Alzheimer's or, you know, uh, Right. Social autism, yes. Social yeah, autism. Social autism and, and uh, you know, early Alzheimer's probably, too. Yeah, but go <laughs> ahead, please. <laughs> that's, that's what's happening to us, social Alzheimer's. Yeah, yeah not, I guess so. Yeah. Not necessarily to the world at large. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so, yeah, uh, I did talk, the, the, the psychological chapter deals with addiction and with uh, autism and Asperger's. Um, right. And, uh, you know, I think Stiegler has a great phrase. He says that uh, that this digital economy 
opens up to portals to forms of addiction and unseen kinds of toxicity. Um, and perhaps that's true. Um, even 12-step groups refer to the morphine drip of television serials. So it is recognized, and the industry refers to it also. There's a very key phrase from Carlton Cuse, who, uh, was, who worked on Lost, and uh, he says that um, it's part of a commodity exchange, which like the products of the food industry can trigger cravings. So he compares uh, television to the manufacture of binge food like potato chips. Uh, and says, you know, what we're doing as manufacturers is fine-tuning tuning the ingredients. So to be more likely to generate and maintain their show's addictive quality. So he even compares it to potato chips. He likes the analogy, you know. So that's a, a bit about the, uh, about the addictive quality. Uh, th now, the second thing, though, is about really the second sort of part of the psychological uh, has really to do with uh, social autism. Um, and first of all, you know, there's, well, a couple of things. Uh, you know, I, I call it the sort of hyper-industrial condition par excellence, sort of social Asperger's. Um, you know, the particular form of high-functioning autism, the Asperger's, that is lionized on contemporary television. By the way, yes, uh, one of the places where you see it, uh, well, two arguments. One is that it's a part of a general sort of, uh, uh, you know, Asperger's or autism, which, you know, which, uh, which kind of devalues relational, uh, you know, uh, aspects of existence and perhaps overvalues computational aspects. Uh, you know, you see it on television in a lot of characters. They've come to the fore in the last oh, 10, about 15 years. And the, the primary one is Sheldon from Big Bang Theory, which was the most popular show for five years. You know, and he's the lead character. Uh, but you also see it in how social media is working and what it's sort of working to try to do. Uh, so you have this sort of high functioning autism, uh, you know, uh, and so you have a, a, a now more antisocial, though extremely productive, partly because focused on work alone, personality, who becomes the hyper-industrial worker par excellence, a complement to the machine logic he or she now replicates. So, you know, the calm, focused, undistracted, linear mind is being pushed aside by a new kind of mind that wants and needs to take in and dole out information in short, disjointed, often overlapping bursts. The faster, the better. Uh, that's from uh, a, a book called The Shadows, which does uh, do a very good description of what this changes that's being affected. Uh, Stiegler calls it a, the calls this part of the logics of dissociation, uh, and you know, building sort of the new man and woman who can adapt quicker, think faster, understand immediately, and innovate continuously, develop earlier, learn younger, look further, work more, produce more and consume more. And Stephen Johnson thinks that this is positive, that uh, you know, one of the things that uh, television, that this more uh, 
kind of advanced television is teaching, you know, and it, as is gaming particularly, is teaching how to adapt, how workers should adapt to this new, to the symbolic economy. It's teaching, it's more than the schools, it's teaching them what skills they need and what skills they don't need. And of course it's teaching them the wrong thing. Well, this, this reminds me of something we did years ago at the Breck Forum. Uh, when we were talking about the ideological state apparatuses, and you and I had a discussion about that education, you would add a, a another category, the media state apparatuses, and I thought it would be included in in basically education. But you you followed, uh, you know, Reggie Debray in Paris, of course, you know, started this whole thing with media manifestos and a, a new discipline called mediology. You know, which obviously, as a pupil of Althusser and a friend, you know, was very well aware of you know the educational state apparatuses, but saw the need for something else. Most people are now quote educated or learned responses come from the media. You know, yes, yes, and there's a, and there's of course a great war. There's a great war between media and the traditional for forms of education. Education. Always trying to undercut the traditional forms of education. You know, it's right. it sees it as a competitor in a way. You know, that was, uh, that was already in, in the Althusser, Michael. The media. Well, that's to a degree, but it's included under the education. No, we're yeah. talking about yes. a separate. Uh, well, no, yeah, no, no, to a degree, there were studies around that. Yeah. No, 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 it wasn't. It, was one of the, it wasn't one of the big three as church, family, church, and education were the three. That's cool. Yeah. Well, education, schooling, schooling was considered by Althusser at that time, he changed his position later, the mm -hmm. most ideological of the ISAs, and this right. fits to the question, precisely because people were so uh, hesitant to ascribe an ideological character to it. When it comes to the media, people are quick to point to its ideological biases, you know, right. particularities. I still I think options as ideology. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, that sense, schooling is the most well, ideological. No, I, I understand that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's what that's what Althusser had said. I think that I think people are quick to point to the ideological biases, but I don't know if they actually exactly understand how that ideology is being passed. Right. Right. I don't think it's often being passed. That, that, that was the issue. I'm sorry I didn't that particular content, you know. But the other thing too is I did I did sort of up, try to update Althusser. So Althusser had talked about three levels of education and how education sorts people out for the market, how it interpolates them, you know, and calls them to exactly the place where they're supposed to be. And whether it's supposed to be grade school, whether it's supposed to be high school, whether it's supposed to be beyond. So I said, we have these kinds of same things with the media. We have a kind of opening level where you have people who essentially sort of workers who are just sort of and they just consume it all day long, you know. Uh, they're on their headphones in McDonald's, and it, you know, it gets them through their jobs. <clears throat> but there's, but there's, the, but they don't have really much uh, of a of a sort of creative input into the media, you know. Then you have people who sort of work with it. Uh, this is a sort of higher level. Oh, and for them, there's really not so much of a questioning of the media, it just kind of works around them. Then you have people who sort of work on it, you know, uh, and they're sort of a second level who go a bit higher, and they uh, they work with media, they understand it, you know, 
but still it also interpolates them. And then you have the third level, and these are the creators of media. And these are the people who really kind of, uh, who really kind of set the agenda, you know? And so in a way I sort of compared that to Althusser's three levels that you have that media itself as an, as an, I, as an, as an ideological apparatus sort of positions, you know, and, and, and knocks people out depending on where you're supposed to be, you know? Mm -hmm. Do um, you want to speak a little more about this uh, social autism and the effects that we're experiencing and what we're going to see? Are we going to see, uh, oh. maybe we can speculate on the future a little bit now that everybody's at home, <laughs> that streaming and, uh, you know, the, the culture of this of seriality is, is obviously going to be dominant. Uh, you know, I mean, people aren't going to read Moby Dick every night. Uh, we, we, we recognize. <laughs> yes, I mean, oh, one of the things about that third class, each of the classes okay. as you go up, each of the media classes as you go up, is less dependent on the media. And that class of the creators have the media, have media sort of in tow. That is, they understand that it works along with books, it works along with education, it works along with these other things. Sure. Yeah. The things that distinguishes them, right. not just consumers of it. Anyway, I think the next thing to do might be to play a clip from uh, the Big Bang Theory and watch Sheldon in action, who is this sort of new man. Okay. This is uh, this is Sheldon, you know, who's this sort of who's this sort of new man, you know, the as the, the uh, social social autism, social Asperger's, who's the star of the show, and Penny. Uh, wants to date Leonard, Sheldon's friend, and they're having this conversation, and Sheldon is supposed to be helping her, but he has really no idea what she's talking about. So I guess that's a, this is the first time he's ever been in her apartment. But on the other hand, if things don't go well with Leonard, I risk losing a really good friend. I mean, I'm guessing he's not looking for a fling. He's the kind of guy that gets into a relationship for, I don't know, like you would say, light years. I would not say that. No one would say that. A light year is a unit of distance, not time. Thank you for the clarification. Draft. You see, people hear the word year and they think duration. Foot pound has the same problem. That's a unit of work, not of weight. Right, thanks. It's mm, common mistake. Not the first one I've made today. Okay. I think this will be my seat. Sheldon, do you have anything to say that has anything to do with, you know, what I'm talking about? Well, let's see. We might consider Schrodinger's cat. Schrodinger? Is that the woman in 2A? No, that's Mrs. Grossinger. And she doesn't have a cat. She has a Mexican hairless, annoying little animal. Yep, yep, Sheldon! <laughs> Sorry, you diverted me. Anyway. <clears throat> In 1935, Erwin Schrodinger, in an attempt to explain the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics, he proposed an experiment where a cat is placed in a box with a sealed vial of poison that will break open at a random time. Now, since no one knows when or if the poison has been released, until the box is opened, the cat can be thought of as both alive and dead. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't get the point. Well, of course you don't get it. I haven't made it yet. <laughs> you have to be psychic to get it, and there's no such thing as psychic. Sheldon, what's the point? 
just like Schrodinger's cat, your potential relationship with Leonard right now can be thought of as both good and bad. It is only by opening the box that you'll find out which it is. Okay, so you're saying I should go out with Leonard. No, 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 no. <laughs> Let me start again. In 1935, <laughs> So just to talk about this for a moment, um, you know, this is a very sort of different kind of sitcom with a new type of character who's just come to the fore uh, in the moment when the digital age is really starting to come into being. And Sheldon, this character, clearly is has Asperger's. They keep saying he doesn't, but if you I looked at the if you look at the characteristics, he's got every characteristic, and every characteristic is kind of a joke in the series. But the thing is, he's very high functioning. And utterly unrelated to what Penny is saying. And that and the, what's new about this is that the series kind of validates Sheldon. Because even in this scene, Sheldon is able to come up with the solution, the relational solution through physics, through the example of Schrodinger's cat, that Penny's unable to come up with. So he is a sort of example of this, of the new man and woman, this new sort of, you know, uh, creature who functions in a different way. But what's new about the sitcom is that he's at the center of the sitcom. He is the one who everyone's sort of focused on. And that's very different. And it, it, and it, it's, it sort of, it, it happens in the moment of the kind of really preponderance of the digital age as we much more moved online, but also as sort of social autism as a kind of uh, thing has been much more sort of promoted. So that so the, yeah. Yeah. So this is symptomatic of the nerd, of the quant, of all of these people that have been very successful in the reign of Silicon Valley. In a certain way, is it, do you read it's, it's, it that way as well? That this yes, kind of social autism, you know, non-social types of beings are now being the center of these uh, kinds of, uh, of, of of the, the series uh, or or of the uh, as they're moving as they're moving to the center of economic life. Right, right. No, look at the teen films of the eighties. There were in all of those films, but they were always sidelined occasionally, you know, 16. Yeah, so it's interesting, yeah, yeah. But, but here, Sheldon is the, ma is the main character. He's right, right. In, and he's in all of his sort of nerdness, and that's all sort of, val that's all sort of validated. Yeah, he'd be an outcast in the 80s, as you... The yes, time. he would have been an outcast. He would have been marginalized. Yeah, completely marginalized. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. So it's a, it's a completely different move. And my argument is that, you know, it's, it's a move away from relatedness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These sort of things, it is addiction, it's sort of addiction and autism, and autism become more slippery meanings. That is, they become more normalized in this kind of, in this kind of late sort of capitalist, this neoliberal age, you know? And the media is participating in this sort of remaking. Right. Both in its representation in characters like Sheldon, but also in just the way it addresses us. You know? Interesting. I mean, this is something that uh, obviously needs greater 
uh, you know, theorization as we go forward. But I mean, it's a very, I think, a very valuable insight. Uh, you know, we're kind of running. Uh, we have a few more minutes, so okay. we can talk a little bit about you know generally political economy, and then move to the alternatives that you may see to this dominant, uh, you know, seriality that. Uh, you know, that your book is very accurately described and, you know. Okay, yeah, I called the, the chapter on political economy, uh, network cable and streaming seriality, decentered centralization and stultifying variety. So while it seems like everything is broken down, you know, you, this is the old, this is the old postmodern argument, you know, and, and television studies people often make it that, you know, we're now being spoken to in this brave new world where we can each be our own, you know, network head, creating right. our own series. It's right. silly. I mean, it's almost too silly for words, and yet in television studies, it's part of the dogma. Wow. Uh, and, uh, uh, but what what I tried to show in the chapter is that is that um, actually what's really going on. Uh, rather than decentralization, well, there's two things. There's there's speaking to you know what Stiegler calls particularities or creating particularities, you know, so creating multiple particularities who don't add up to uh, a collective, sort of de departicularizing really, you know, or whatever, you know, in the ultimate kind of thing. But Stiegler says, you know, the eyes being erased, you know, mm -hmm. uh, so we can't have a we, um, but. The other thing, the thing about this in terms of the political economy is how it's actually being arranged. If you look at the structure and the form of the industry, it doesn't look not only that much different from the networks, and, and Netflix has recently been being called a network. You know, it's, it's being talked of that way. Uh, it doesn't, not, to, not only does it not look that different, but it doesn't look that different from the Hollywood studio system of the 30s to the 60s where you had five major studios, three minor ones, and no one else could break in. Reed Hastings is the new uh, Irvi, uh, 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 Thalberg, right? Yeah, <laughs> yes. Jack Warner, Jack Warner, if you will. Jack Warner. Or Louis yeah. Mayer, yeah, yeah. Louis Mayer, he's really the, the, the real Louis Mayer. Right. He used to be putting asses in seats, now the asses are moving and the, and the mobile thing is chasing them. Right, exactly. exactly. So, um, yeah, so, you know, all about this kind of idea that, you know, all of these things, there's no such thing as Netflix. Netflix is not a new phenomenon. It uses all these other things. And one thing I tried to do was I took three shows, one a network, one a cable, and one a Netflix show, three sitcoms, uh, The Office, uh, The Larry Sanders Show, one of the greatest shows ever on television, uh, and... Um, uh, Orange is the New Black, and I tried to show how structurally similar they actually were. Mm -hmm. you know, and what's really different is the kind of branding that you have to do. But, you know, a lot of the cable channels, you know, everyone said, oh, cable is where things really get broken down, and there's, you know, they're speaking to everybody. Well, the major cable channels were all owned by the networks. So, you know, so what kind of breaking down was there? Same thing you're seeing now, too. What you're seeing in Netflix, you know, is, um, yes, okay, there's, there's different money behind it. There's some silicon money behind it. But you're seeing the same old tropes follow the Netflix series, you know. Um, so I want to use that as kind of a lead-in to talk about the possibilities of the future because one possibility of the future is, is the way things are going is simply 
um, a monopolization and a homogenization, you know, so that really television production really becomes the work of five streaming services, which were the five studios from the 30s to the 60s, you know. And yes, we have, we're speaking to individual audiences, but the economic structure is almost exactly the same. Um, okay, that's a possibility. <clears throat> I think, though, that there are two, uh, two contradictions within Netflix that can be exploited. Uh, one is that is when everyone talks about Netflix, they talk about the freedom that they have in Netflix. You know, that Netflix and Amazon, every creator will say, Netflix and Amazon didn't impose anything on me. I went to them with an idea, and they just let me do it. Well, okay, I mean, the, okay, they went to them with an idea, but they had already proved that you knew how to work within all the established tropes of the television industry, and they trusted you to do that. That's kind of, you know, what they're saying. But actually, creators really do want more freedom. The, the, the freedom they're talking about, which is a sham, could really become a real freedom. And the form has developed. It is capable of some very strong content. You know, I went to show, maybe I will show again, this clip from, uh, from Justified. It might be a good way for us to end. Um, right. You know, so that's one thing is you can sort of start to exploit the idea of real freedom rather than the sham freedom that's promised from Netflix. The other thing that you can exploit is the pay system. That is, Netflix pays up front with no residuals, which means that you sell your soul and you never collect a dime. Right. right. You collect the initial money, but you don't collect anything after that. So your work really doesn't pay off for you. It's a, it's a model of the recording industry, as you know. In the 1930s, they did the same thing with the artists. Yeah. Right? They're yeah. going to pay you up front for the album, but you have yeah. no, no subsidiary rights or distribution rights. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that was a big scam with black artists. who said, oh, you know, and the idea, the idea from the white producers is we'll throw some money at you. What do you think? Right. You know, right. kind of knowing that they control the distribution and th then that they would control the profits. Yeah, exactly. You know, same Netflix is really, it's a very good analogy. Netflix is really the same thing. But why wouldn't people step away from that? Why wouldn't, if we can establish some, if we can establish some platforms, and there's one right now called Means TV, which is, which is okay. It's mostly the Steven Soderbergh iPhone school of short documentaries on political subjects, but we could expand that. And if, if creators, and maybe they would be, would be willing to just take a little less money in return for getting more residuals, you know, in the system, then yeah. it could step outside of the profit motive, which really does, at this point, hold back some of what's actually been done on serial TV and what could be done, you know? It really repositions it back into the addictive mode. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Soderbergh, the film, he just did one, right? You, yeah, it's very know, good. It's called High Flying, Flying Bird. Bird. High Flying, Flying Bird about the uh, NBA. I showed it in my yes. uh, my uh, sociology of sports class. A very yes. interesting thing about eliminating the middleman, basically, <laughs> where the uh, yes. the owner and the player negotiate directly, and no no more need for agents. You know, in, in a way. Exactly of, right. Uh, and, and let me say one thing about that film. He shot it on an iPhone, right? And yeah. you know. You don't notice because the star of the film is the script. Right. The script just utterly shines. That yes. the black 
writer of that script is just is is extraordinary. That script just leaps off the page at you, you know, in terms of what he knows about the Asian business and what he knows about sports and what you learn from it, you know. Yeah. So yeah. you don't need really all the high quality things you have back with the film in film noir in the 1940s and RKO. Dory Sherry said, "Look." We don't need these high production values. We can have the values in the script, and that's our that's our something added. And if we have great scripts about social subjects, people will be interested. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I wanted to point that, and I guess maybe uh, you know. Yeah. I, I wanted to just mention before you go up to the clip that I, I thought of the descriptions of series pages one ninety five to two hundred six, <laughs> which I read very carefully because I love this. The, the series Justified, and oh, especially yeah. what you do with the second season, is a very a high point in the book to me in terms of an actual object uh, lesson in how to read serial TV and what a film, I mean, what a series like Justified does. And I, I love the series anyway, and uh, yeah, uh, Boyd yeah. Crowder, one of my favorite uh, characters in, uh, yeah. in all of uh, TV in the recent uh, era, you know. And, Yes, I, I learned how. Yeah, it's yeah. true. I've gotten compliments on my readings of shows, and you know, I was by a master, Bill Simon at at uh, NYU, who was a Net Michael student. You know, and I learned how to read. Uh, you know, anyway, so this is a scene where, in 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 the midpoint of uh, season two, uh, just right as a show about Kentucky, it's about. But this season two is particularly about mining and about a company that wants to come in and um, do, you know, mountaintop evacu evacuation where they blow the mountaintops off. And you see the, uh, the um, woman who they send uh, shows us, you know, what she um, tells, tells them what they can expect. And then this woman played by Margot Martindale, who's, who's, a, who's actually a... Uh, she is a, uh, you know, um, oh, what's the word? She, she makes whiskey. Uh, you know, she's, she's, a, she's an illegal manufacturer of whiskey, and her sons sell drugs. So she's, a, you know, sort of representative of the uh, underground economy. But she's the one who sort of stands up and kind of speaks back uh, to the uh, representative of uh, this uh, company. So let me see if I can bring it up. Now I come into this county and look around, and I see empty businesses eat we can bring prosperity back to this land god put coal in these hills for just that purpose i believe that deep down in my heart and i think i think you all do too apparently Black Pike is here to help us realize God's great plan. And all they're asking us to let them do is cut the top off our mountain. Well, my people pioneered this valley when George Washington was president of the United States. And as long as we've been here, the story's always been the same. Big money men come in, take the timber and the coal, and the strength of our people. And what do they leave behind? Poundments full of poison slurry and valleys full of toxic trash. You know what happens when 500 million gallons of slurry breaks loose? 
The gates of hell open. Those poundments are built strong to keep the slurry back. The gates of hell open, and all that waste rolls down through the hollers and poisons the water and the land and everything it touches. Mining Company has a, has a word for those leavings, doesn't it? The spoil. The spoil. And that is what our lives will be if Black Pike has their way with our mountain. With all um, I mean, you know, this is, I think, maybe, you know, it just sort of points to, I think, what can be done. Uh, by the way, this is the first time I noticed that the uh, Black Pike woman uses this kind of quasi-religious thing where she, you know, moves to the heavens uh, to try to insinuate herself into everyone. But uh, this is an amazing season. Won a Peabody Award this this season. Margot Martindale won the won the Emmy for Best uh, Supporting Actress. But it's a really extraordinary season, and it's really well developed uh, as a serial season about the impoverishment of uh, Harlan County. So, um, uh, anything else? Uh, because we we should wrap up and. Of course, we thank you greatly for this, and uh, it's a remarkably uh, deep dive into TV studies, and probably uh, I'm hoping it changes somewhat of the paradigm for studies uh, in, in, in departments, uh, you know, in the United States. I'm sure it will be better received uh, in Europe <laughs> in some ways. I think you, you actually went to Bernard Stieglair's uh, center, right, at the Pompidou of the Ars Industrialis, and presented a little bit of the book, which is interesting, and, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, received very well, right, and, and thought of highly, and Fred Jamison, of course, you know, uh, has uh, used it in, uh, you know, some of his uh, talks, so this, this is a very good, good start, so uh, again, I, I recommend highly everybody to read the book, Look for the forthcoming uh, review and situations in uh, in coming up in uh, in uh, September, and hopefully we'll get Dennis to come to New York and talk more about this and his ongoing work. And uh, on the Institute for Radical Imagination site, uh, one of Dennis's latest pieces is there, uh, one of his cultural pieces. He contributes multiple things to us uh, that we put up on both Facebook for situations and now on the uh, Institute for Radical Imagination uh, site, you know, which is uh, radicalimagination.institute if you Google it. And uh, so we, we thank you very much. Thank you, Peter, for the usual uh, insights and good uh, good questions and commentary. And to our uh, our uh, good friend, uh, Josh Calvo, who's doing the, the, the background here and the editing. And uh, thank you very much. And thank you to you, Dennis, for giving us a good hour and almost a half of your time with all the extra stuff we had to do. So, and we wish you all the success with the book and hopefully see you soon. Yeah. Thanks. Any, any just, final, just, yeah, sure. Yeah, just, just a little plug. I, my blog is just going up. I'm a, I am a television critic also. It's called Bro on the Whole Television Beat. And if you search Google, you'll, you'll come, you'll, uh, the blog will come up. Right, right. Thank you again. And yes, uh, we really appreciate your, your time. And uh, this has been a very, very uh, good show and something different from us, our venture, uh, prosperity Marxism into culture, into the culture. And 
There is a war between the rich and poor, a war between the man and the woman. There is a war between the ones who say there is a war and the ones who say that there isn't. Why don't you come on back to the war? That's right, get in it. Why don't 